0: The reading tonight is from Acts chapter 2, and it's verses 36 to 47. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This is God's word.
1: Uh, My name's Phil, I'm, I'm the Associate Minister. Let's pray for God's help, that we would understand his word. Father God, we have no interest in human religion. We want to know the truth about you. More than that, we want to know you. And so, Father, we, we pray that as we read your word, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would see the Lord Jesus. We would understand the work of his Holy Spirit, that we might, we might be confident that our lives are built on a relationship with the living God and our, communica- our community is grounded in an experience of him. Father, we beg you that this might be the case for each and every one of us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You have to excuse my voice a bit. Um, it's, uh, it's not the miracle of tongues from last week. It is, uh, it's, it's just a common cold. Um, the, now, this week we're in part two of Pentecost, really. And we're seeing what happens when the Holy Spirit falls on a group of people which is what happened at Pentecost. What then happens in the community? Now, community is something that we all long for. There is a deep and fundamental need in all humans for community. And so we feel it very keenly when either we don't have community or or when community fails or disappoints us. Modern Western culture is not great at community. Great at lots of things, but probably not at community. Too often the communities that we do have are are homogenous. They're just people like us. An awful lot of life is like that. And we divide over our differences. It's another human feature. We long for community, but we divide over our differences. We divide majority and minority cultures and races. We divide university educated and blue collar. We divide labor and Tory. We divide pinky-ring posh and non-posh. We divide in any way we possibly can. We find a way to divide. And too often, as well as being homogenous, our communities are brittle, if we're honest. Our friendship groups, our communities, they're very brittle. It doesn't take much before we drop people because they've hurt us or failed us. Well, they're just too needy. And what we're going to see in Acts 2, what we heard in the reading Laura just gave us, is a picture of something far, far better. Now, it's not a, a formal template of this is how church should run. It's a snapshot of the first few days of a vibrant community of people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit and are working out, what on earth does life look like now? And it's exciting. And actually, I think in some ways, what we read here about how the church behaves is a whole lot more miraculous than the supernatural fire and the ability to speak other languages that fell upon the church, upon the apostles last week. What we read of this community is is actually far more miraculous. And so if you're a little disillusioned with church, perhaps you've been disappointed in the past, well, look again, this is what church should be. And I hope it's something that you want. Here is what church can be too if each and every one of us come back to living in the power of the Spirit the way that Jesus wants us to. There's encouragement here of what can happen when a group of people lean into the work that God's Spirit is doing in them and form a community around what God is calling. There's also challenge. There's a challenge to those of us who are just a bit blasé and welded too tightly to our comfortable little friendship group, because God calls us to be an outward-looking and inclusive community, where we are sacrificial in not just who we welcome in the sense of saying hello to, but who we welcome into our friendships, our homes, and how we serve one another with our resources. Now let's get into it. We've seen uh, that Luke's got three aims as he charts the spread of the Jesus movement from the resurrection of Jesus onwards. Uh, His three aims are to show that the message of the risen Lord Jesus is one, credible, two, healthy for society, and three, spreads rather messily. And it's point two that we see here as he shows how radically healthy the message of Jesus Christ is, what an incredible society it creates. Let's start at uh, at verse 40, This is the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's the equivalent of about 160,000 becoming Christians one night in London, given the sizes of the two places. Now, the God these people turn back to is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, given that God himself is relational, loving, it should be no surprise that what happens immediately is that they are formed into relationship, community. Not just a bunch of individual believers in God relating vertically to him, but a church, a spirit-filled community, relating to one another horizontally as they relate together vertically to God. The New Testament has absolutely no concept of me and my private faith with Jesus, and I don't need anybody else. See, when God calls you into relationship with himself, and he calls each of us to that relationship, he also always calls us into relationship with his people, into church. To be a follower of Jesus is to be part of a church. Now, let's see what that community is like, as we see this early snapshot. Firstly, it's united by the experience of forgiveness. Now, the beginning of chapter 2, let's wind back a bit. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 5, you see who is in this first church. 2, verse 5, Now that we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. It's slightly hyperbole. It's saying just all over the world, people have gathered in from every culture. So the question is, hang on a second, this first church is about the most diverse group of people ever joined together. So how on earth do they form a community so rich and deep as the one that we read about in verses 42 to 47? They're in and out of each other's houses every day. I mean, presumably, given that they've all come, uh, most of them have come from the nations around the, the Mediterranean basin. These Christians, these early Christians who live in Jerusalem, are having to open their own houses to a whole heap of people who don't speak the same language, have different backgrounds, different cultures, different customs. And this is just radical, especially in the first century. Uh, The Yale historian Kenneth Scott Latourette wrote towards the the middle part of the last century about what he called the triumph of Christianity. How do you explain how this hopeless ragtag little group in the armpit of the Roman Empire, middle of nowhere, go to becoming the dominant religious movement in the world. And he had a number of reasons. The fourth was this. He said, Christianity's success is to be found in its inclusiveness more than any other of its competitors. It attracted all races and classes. Christianity gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, to Greek and barbarian, the lowly and unlettered, and many of the learned. Christianity, too, was for both sexes. The church welcomed rich and poor. No other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. Wonderful. How? I mean, how? Diversity is wonderful in theory, but the practice is hard. Most of us will know that. So how do you actually form a genuine community when the people are separated by uh, language, culture, presumably class, wealth, and education too? Well, the answer is found in the last few verses we looked at last week that we began our reading with. Look at verse 37. So Peter has just told them that the Jesus Christ, who they crucified 50 days earlier, is the Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that is the great key for breaking down barriers instinctively, we put up barriers and we look down on people. Instinctively, we're always looking to form a group that can look down on other people to make us feel good about ourselves. We are pathetically brilliant at it as humans. But theologian Kenneth Cancer states boldly, how can you look down on anyone else when you're standing at the foot of the cross? What do you mean? Well, look, what is the one-entry requirement to join, well, this church, (laughs) any church, this, this new community we read about in Acts 2. The one entry requirement is faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus requires you, me, anybody to accept, I deserve God's eternal wrathful judgment. And I am only welcome in his people because in his kindness, he has paid my debts in full through Jesus' death. In other words... Everyone is here by grace and not by merit. To be part of God's people, you have to recognize you don't get in by family pedigree. You don't get in because you're part of a chosen nation. I'm not here because in my intellectual superiority, I worked out the truth. I'm not here because in my moral virtue, I managed to be so good that God had to open the doors. I couldn't buy my way in with money, and it's not a privilege of my class or my accent. Anybody who is part of God's people can say, I'm only here because Jesus forgave my sins. That's true for me, and it's true for you, and it was true for these Christians. And so every time we read verse 42, they broke bread. They're reminded that they're only here because the Savior was broken for them. And that brings about a radical unity because none of us can put ourselves above anybody else in here. It brings about an incredible unity. I read the account of a missionary who spent uh, most of his life traveling to places where it was illegal and very, very dangerous to be a Christian. And as as a young man with a bit of a venture about him, he realized that these Christians needed some serious amounts of encouragement. And so he started traveling, this was in, into communist Europe um, in the early days, to, to encourage these, uh, these poor beleaguered, embattled Christians in, the, in churches that were metaphorically and sometimes literally underground. And he writes in, in one of the early chapters of his, uh, of his autobiography, as he, as he recounts these early visits, he writes of, of one of the first times he met a Christian behind the Iron Curtain. And he said, we, we sort of looked at each other and we, we struggled to communicate because everything in the world was different for us. Our background, our language, our cultural assumptions, everything. There was just this vast chasm of human difference between us. But then he writes, but I experienced one of the common miracles of the Christian life. Our spirits recognized each other. Isn't that wonderful? And this is something that he writes about again and again. He said, you meet these people, they're nothing like me. (laughs) They look different. They talk different. They sing different. The food they eat smells different. Everything's different. But at the deepest level, we share what matters most. And if you share Christ, then you share a deep bond that transcends all the things we humans divide over. Gender, class, race, politics. All of it. Glorious diversity is God's gift. And unity is God's miracle. So enjoy it. <laughs> if you're a Christian, enjoy that miracle. When you go away, enjoy the very awkward delight of going to local churches in different places. It's always a bit odd, and it's wonderful. But much more fundamentally, enjoy that privilege here and now. Your life will be massively impoverished if your friendships are only with people like you. If there are no friends in your life, the only explanation for is, well, the only thing that could explain how they are friends is faith in Jesus. If you've got nobody in your life like that, you'll be hugely impoverished. You're missing out on witnessing the power of the cross to bring people together. You're missing out on, on the privilege and the benefit of having diverse perspectives speak into you. But actually more importantly than what you miss out on, When our friendships at the micro level and our church at the macro level demonstrate the radical inclusivity and diversity of the gospel, we display the glory of God. And we're able to say to the watching world, they see demonstrated here that Jesus has the power to heal our fractured and broken society a wonderful thing. This this is a group united by the experience of forgiveness. That's who they are. Let's have a look now in more detail at what they do. What they do? They're devoted to God and one another. What does a group of people do when they're filled with the Spirit? They devoted themselves, verse forty two, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There you go. Uh, learning, loving, and liturgy, or more simply, um, they love God and they love one another. They love God and they love one another. So, firstly, they're devoted to God. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, why are they devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, Jesus has appointed the apostles as his authorized witnesses. We've seen that again and again. And that's underlined, actually, in verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. If you look back at 2.22, you'll see this phrase, signs and wonders, wonders and signs, is what Peter says and demonstrates that Jesus is God's man. Chapter 2, verse 22, is a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. It's God's stamp of approval. The point is, the Holy Spirit enables the apostles to do kind of Jesus-like things and to speak Jesus' words. And so when the apostles teach, the people know that they are hearing the words of Jesus Christ. The church listened to them orally. The apostles were alive at that point. What they taught was then written down in our Bibles. And so you and I gather and read what they said. Now, this is really important to see. The work of the Spirit brings a devotion to the teaching of the apostles. And sometimes we need to hear this because we're sometimes tempted to pit the Spirit against the Bible. Certainly, I know um, that uh, when I was a young Christian, I was, in, um, I was in some churches when I was at university where the sign of spiritual maturity was that you moved beyond reading the Bible to just hearing directly from the Holy Spirit. You didn't really need the Bible for God to tell you what to do. You just heard directly from the Spirit. But you see here, one of the key marks of being truly filled with the Spirit is a hunger for the teaching of the apostles, the Bible. The work of the Spirit is, is not to make the Bible obsolete, so we don't need that anymore. The work of the Spirit is to make us devoted more and more and more to the words of God in Scripture. So The, the missionary I mentioned earlier, um, his name was Brother Andrew and he died uh, just this week. He was a Dutch Christian, and uh, he spent the, the Cold War smuggling Bibles into communist Europe in that VW um, Beetle. Fantastic. Uh, he was somehow one step ahead of the Stasi and the KGB for, for all of that time. And actually, after the, the, um, the Berlin Wall fell and the, um, and the communist systems imploded, they found, uh, he was told later on, that the KGB had a file 150 pages thick on him, and yet they never managed to catch him. Spirit kept him safe. I mean, it's basically James Bond with a suitcase of Bibles instead of a Walther PPK and no casual sex. But it's kind of, it's like, you know, <laughs> let's just be clear about that. He's, you read his life account, there's none of that sort of Bond stuff, okay? But it is the most exciting, incredible story you'll ever read. You, if you haven't read God's Smuggler, it is unputdownable, absolutely unputdownable. Bond with a Bible. Now, for the people he went to, owning a Bible was a crime, an act of rebellion against the state. Bibles had been burned, binned, you couldn't get hold of them. But for people who are full of the Spirit, that burning desire to have the Word of God meant that they were willing to risk imprisonment or even worse to get their hands on one of these And as a man full of the Spirit, he was willing to risk everything to put these books into their hands. So I have to say, if you're looking for a church, and one of your criteria, as it should be, is I want a place that's full of the Holy Spirit, then look for a consuming devotion to God's Word, the Bible. It's not the only thing that tells you it's full of the Spirit. But if there's no devotion, no consuming devotion to the Bible, you wonder... Is the spirit there? And if you lost that hunger in your own heart for God's word, then pray that he would restore it by his spirit, the spirit who inspired these words to be written. Okay, more briefly, um, they're also devoted to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, annoyingly, our translation slightly bogs it at this point. You see, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It ought to read, literally, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. It's referring to a sort of formal, organized, recognized activity, what we'd call the Lord's Supper or communion, and to to the set prayers that the church prayed when they gathered together. So it's interesting, Uh, certainly formal church activity isn't a quenching of the Spirit. It was there right at the start. Now, God's people have always prayed as they gather together in the Old Testament. But now the new development is that communion, the Lord's Supper, becomes central to the experience of God's people as they gather together, which is no surprise, given that they have been welcomed into God's people through the death of Jesus on the cross. It should be no surprise that central to what they do is remembering and celebrating his death on the cross for them. They also, um, thirdly, they devoted themselves to fellowship, to God and to one another. They devoted themselves to one another. Now, the word fellowship has become a slightly weak word. It, it, it's kind of become, if you've hung around church at all, it's, it's used for Christians hanging around after church, drinking slightly stale tea and eating rich tea biscuits and the like. It's, it's quite a sort of weak word. But actually what goes on here? He's anything but weak and thin. So verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then 44 picks up on what that fellowship looks like. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, do you see from verse 44, they didn't just do stuff together, they were together. It's not just a shift in activity, it's a shift in identity. Church, the people of God becomes who they are. And the 4th century theologian Augustine, the great African theologian, talked about sin as the inclination, the, the drive, the desire to curve in on myself in self-protection, self-obsession and selfish accumulation thinking of me, protecting me, accumulating my wealth, my comfort, my security. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, he fills us up so much with his love and joy that we cannot remain like this. It just, we can't. And he turns us upwards in praise to God, and he turns us outwards in joyful generosity to others. That's what happens when the Spirit comes. And this is uh, played out, we see here, in two very concrete ways with uh, two of our most precious resources, time and money. Uh, Firstly, money. Now, this isn't externally coerced redistribution of resources. It's not communism. They still own their homes, verse 47. It's a radical internal change of heart such that I now view my money, my stuff, as resources to be used for the blessing of others. I remember seeing this as an 18-year-old. I went on a short-term missions trip to northern Argentina, and our luggage was delayed. So we arrived at this little um, village with no bedding or anything uh, quite late one evening. And uh, amazingly, the, um, the, the people, that the, the community that we were, we were staying with, they, they rallied round, and um, they brought a whole heap of mattresses and blankets to the, to the old sort of barn that we were, we were crashing in for the next couple of months, which was really, really kind of them. And then a few days later, our luggage arrived. About a week later, our luggage arrived. And so we took back the the mattresses and and blankets. And it was then that we realized that these were not spares. These were their only mattresses, their only blankets. But they hadn't thought twice about giving them up for a bunch of wealthy Westerners who they knew were going back to far more comfortable lives than they would ever experience. Extraordinary generosity. Generosity. I've seen countless examples of it here in different ways as well. Um, The little things of the, the friendship groups and discipleship groups paying for meals, weekend away places, covering rent for those who are in need. When things have got beyond that, there's the Deacons Fund, which I hope most people know about at church, to help those in need. And if you are in trouble, then please do contact the Deacons Fund. And if you feel able to contribute, then please do so, because I imagine more and more are going to need it in the coming year. And what you have here, as you read that they were together and had everything in common and sold to give to those in need, this is not a culture of some deep pockets and some greedy sponges. That's not what's going on. Instead, you've got a culture where everyone longs to be generous to one another. Partly because they recognize that we're made in the image of the God who has been generous to us. And so they delight to show that generosity to those who they're joined with by the Holy Spirit now. Secondly, time, verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Again, it's not coercion. They just love to be with one another and to learn together. Now, there are, of course, seasons of life and work and seasons of faith. And this is a brand new, very young church excitedly working out. What on earth does it mean that that Jesus has died and risen and and we now live for him? So I imagine there there is a kind of fresh flush of enthusiasm about them. But as someone older than almost everybody here, can I say to you, life only gets busier. And so invest now as much as you can. Get to every church meeting you can to deepen your knowledge of God and your relationship with his people. Don't ask, how often can I miss church without it becoming a problem for my faith? That's the wrong question. The question is, how can I maximize the opportunities I've got to go as deep with God and his people as I possibly can? Uh, those who are here on Thursday night, we, uh, we commissioned Henry Chan as um, an elder um, this week. And I was really struck by something he said as he talked about his own journey of faith. He talked about the time when he was a young man. He is much older than he looks. Um, don't be fooled by his youthful good looks. Uh, he talks about the time when, uh, as a young man, he and a group of other young Christians were just really sort of getting to work out what, what it meant to really follow Jesus. And they started to, to meet together every evening to dig into his word and pray together and talk about how to do life. And he said this, he said, Doing life together meant Christianity turned from a concept I believed in to a lifestyle I lived. Very interesting. So said, it was when we, when we started doing life together. That's when Christianity turned from a concept I believed in to a lifestyle I lived. Now, look, these verses are a snapshot, and we'll see a whole lot more detail in the rest of the New Testament about what church looks like, but these are a great challenge to us in the West, because whether you realize it or not, you've been marinated in a culture of individualism and materialism. It's often been observed that in London, we love, we crave community until we realize what it demands from me. <laughs> I think it's probably true. I mean, to be, to be a, a genuine Christian who plays their full part in the church requires a frightening level of commitment, if this is true. And as the cost of living crisis bites, we may have more opportunities than we want to emulate them by helping one another financially. But before you run for the exit at the end of the service, think not only about what genuine Christian community demands from me and commitment. Think about what it is promising to you. When you and I open ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit and seek to live out our calling as Christians. We help to create a community where everybody else is here for you. Where people will love you sacrificially. Where people will delight to meet your needs. Where there will always be someone willing to listen to you where you will be valued. Isn't that what we all long for? A community like that? That's what's on offer. Don't think only what's demanded. Think about what's promised. And lastly, very briefly, the result of a church like that is that it grows. Uh, We'll start back at verse 46. Uh, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. As they live out their their faith in public, I guess the temple courts, the only place big enough for them all to meet, this big gathering. Uh, Others see how they live and hear what they believe, and so join them. But I think the the striking words are the words saved and added. Do you see? The words saved and added in verse uh, 47. Enjoying the favor of the people, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Same words used in verse 40 and 41. Save yourselves. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number. I think Luke is subtly telling us, this small trickle of new believers day by day is as much a mighty work of the Spirit as the extraordinary revival with 3,000. The same salvation is happening. Now, I shared, um, I shared last week a, a quotation from, um, from an American pastor called Francis Chan, He says, uh, we are not all we are made to be when everything in our lives and churches can be explained apart from the work and presence of the Spirit of God. And it strikes me that when you read this description of this community, you think, absolutely, (laughs) only the miraculous power of God could explain people living like this. And it is only by the power of the Spirit that a church like that could exist today here in London. But it doesn't happen as the Spirit falls upon the church. It happens as individuals put their trust in the Lord Jesus and receive his Spirit. It happens as you and you and you and you and I recognize that the Spirit wants us to live this life. And we start to believe that this is the best way to live. And we start to believe that He really can give me the power to do so. And then we start to live like that. It is already happening in many ways. And I do genuinely regularly give thanks to God as I pray for you for all I see of the Holy Spirit in this church. But let us commit to lean in deeper to this gospel call of deep community. We have an enormous, enormous blessing of diversity of nations and backgrounds here in London and here at church. So let's not just seek out people like us, our familiar friends after church and in our DG groups, but let's rejoice to declare to the world that Jesus makes us one and to live that out. God reached beyond people like him at enormous cost to make us a people with him. So let's step into the adventure of seeing God at work supernaturally in our hearts and lives. And let's pray and let's answer our own prayers to see this become a community where increasingly all people are truly welcomed and all needs are joyfully met. That would be a miracle. And that would be an amazing church to be part of. And we can. We can. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, uh, we find ourselves conflicted as we look at this. Uh, we love the thought of being in a community like this, but we are probably a bit terrified at the cost to us of playing our part. And we pray that you would, you would convince our minds that this is the richest and best way to live, and that you would also convince our hearts that we can do this. And so we pray We pray even tonight that at the end of this service, you would help us to take the first steps to do this more and more. Thank you, Father, for um, the ways in which this is already a reality amongst us. But we pray that we would not be satisfied. We pray that we would want to be a church in which others look in and can only explain the community by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.